Hey, shalom, guys, and welcome to WITCAST, W-I-T, Wisdom and Torah Ministries podcast. We're going to be uh, coming to you, hopefully, every week, uh, as my schedule allows me. And the whole idea is to bring topics other than the regular biblical uh, topics that I always bring. I want to bring some guests. I want to talk about subjects that normally I don't cover on my uh, regular teachings. Uh, I think just to challenge us to, to uh, uh, have some mental gymnastics and compare different things. And today's topic is very interesting. I picked this topic on purpose. I wanted to really go right out of the get-go, right out of the gate with something that I think is in our minds of everybody. The topic will be calendars, the Book of Enoch, and also the Sadokai calendar, if there's such a thing. And, you know, the Qumran community and what the validity of those books are and what role do they play in the uh, understanding of scripture? That's one of the things. Are they scripture or not? That's a question we need to ask. So these type of podcasts are going to be more addressed to deal with issues of the Bible, politics, everyday life, uh, foods, whatever you want to do, it, and includes some theological perspective and different type of opinions. Today, I have a very special guest. He's a friend of mine, since 2004, but he's also a Hebrew scholar, and uh, he just finished all the requirements for his master's from uh, one of the universities in Israel. He's, uh, he's actually one of those people that the original, I think he was one of the original guys that got me involved in ancient Near Eastern history, and I'm very grateful to be his friend and to, uh, and to have him with me. His name is Yoha Levy. So Yoha Levy is here with us today. So Yo. Um, uh, shalom to you, my friend. If you have your uh, your microphone, I mean your camera, please turn it on. And um, I'm really happy that you're with me, and that you have the opportunity to come and uh, share with us what you know. And I think it's going to be really, really good because let me tell you, man, uh, when you understand the Bible from the Hebrew perspective, and you're a Hebrew teacher, so you know when you understand the Bible from a Hebrew perspective, it changes everything. And then I'm going to have my friend right here come up, add pin. Hey, Joe, how are you, man? I'm very well. How about you? Man, I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining me and taking the invitation. I you know, highly respect your scholarship. And I think that you are one of those few people that I, every time I have a question, I call and I trust you uh, because you, one of the things that I like about you is that you tell me straight up, you don't, you don't pull punches, you don't play around and, you know, you don't play politics. And I love that because... When it comes to biblical principles, we need to stand on what is true. And I know that you're a seeker of truth. And not all the time do we always agree, but I mean, we can have a really lively conversation of um, what we're trying to learn. So the reason why I wanted you to be my first guest in, uh, in my podcast, uh, I'm trying to re-engage re again in podcast settings, is because I, I really want them to get to know from Israel, from somebody who studied, studied the topic and knows a little bit more about it than we do in the Western world. So the problem is this, my friend, um, and I'm going to tell you the topics that we're going to cover, and then I want you to introduce yourself and tell us your education, where you live, your family, and all that stuff, and then we get going. But I want to talk, I want to talk about, about calendars, the validity of the calendar, and the legality of it for a little bit, then cover some of those books that for some reason in the Western world, People who are not born in Israel or studied even Judaism or even know the Hebrew, now they want to add books to the canons. And that's something that's important for us to understand, which now creates a huge quandary in theology because they are taking things that are not in the canons and they're applying it to the everyday lifestyle and keeping it as 
the same authority as scripture and it's creating a lot of confusion. So first things first, who are you, where you come from, what have you done? And I'm, I'm glad to have you here. So go ahead, my friend. Okay, so my name is Yoel Halevi. Um, I am the son of two immigrants from England who moved to the Haifa area in Israel. I've been living in Israel my entire life. Um, I got involved in ancient Near Eastern studies when I was about 15 years old. I was very interested in certain uh, temple topics and got into that very deep. And uh, eventually, after going through multiple careers, including being a cook and other things, I decided to actually pursue my true passion, which is to actually work as an academic. Um, I run a school called Hebrew in Israel. You can find me online. Yeah. Uh, I teach uh, individual people um, and sometimes small groups, uh, biblical Hebrew, biblical studies, and so on. I am a graduate of multiple um, uh, rabbinic schools. Um, I was actually offered to become a rabbi. I actually refused the, the idea because it was I didn't see it as who I am. Um, I have a bachelor's degree from the Open University of Israel, which is one of the toughest universities in Israel, by the way. Usually, uh, when you have a degree from there, you're accepted to any other, any graduate degree uh, anywhere, especially if you have good grades. And I have finished my requirements for a master's degree in uh, biblical studies at uh, Haifa University. Uh, but my work at Haifa University has been a lot more than that because um, I came in with uh, very good recommendations. So I currently am working with uh, Dr. Yitzhak Fedel, uh, who, who taught me Akkadian. Um, and you actually, if I'm not mistaken, you have a book of his out there. Yeah, an outstanding the book. Somewhere. I, I remember when I showed you the book, you go like, uh, yeah, I'm an understudy on the hand. I go, what? Crazy. Yeah, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ruin something and tell you there's another book coming out and I helped edit it. Oh, and really? <laughs> I'm looking for the book I, as I'm talking to you. I actually I actually have a copy of the book really? uh, on my computer because I, I had to I was involved in editing and dealing with the uh, bibliography. Uh, so I read part of the book. It's, it's, it's very interesting. And by the way, uh, Fedel, Fedel, for the audience who doesn't know, is one of the uh, foremost scholars. And he wrote a book about, you know, uh, Korbanot, offering on the Hittite ritual and it's and blood uh manipulation. blood manipulation is i learned a lot from him it's an amazing scholar so i'm glad you had a chance to study with him yes he's mostly he's a well known in the academic world for his work on hittite um uh, documentation and i've actually seen him read hittite off the bat just like that on his computer wow. i was writing, i was writing the train with him uh, one evening um uh, but it's a lot more than that because i studied calendars under professor Jonathan bendov who is literally one of the biggest scholars in the world. Ben the Dove, I have about four books of his, it's outstanding. I, I had the privilege to work with him, office next to office for, for almost two years. Um, per, an amazing scholar, I, I literally treat him, I look at him as my, as we call Morive Rabbi, he is the one I, le I learned the most from. Yeah. And I actually suggested to him that I, I write a research paper on calendars and link it to Jeroboam. And I suggested a few things that got really good markings on the meat. He really enjoyed some points that awesome. I made there. Uh, so he, it forced me to study even more about ancient Eastern calendars and, um, um, and just look into the subject really, really deeply. And it, it's a very, very complicated subject, really, really complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm currently writing a thesis under uh, Dr. 
still should be, I think you know, I should be advocating to professor now, if I actually have to ask him. Uh, Itamar Kislev, he's a classic um, Bible scholar. His work is more um, uh, higher and lower, lower criticism. Um, so I'm actually kind of rounding up everything that I'm doing. So I'm also doing classic biblical studies, some stuff that as a religious, as, as a person of faith or a religious person, um, it's a little uncomfortable to write about, but it's, it's something that really helps you yeah. understand that world even better. Um, and hopefully I, I already spoke with one of the professors there, um, to study Egyptian next year, mm -hmm. uh, what's called Ramesside Egyptian. And hopefully same with the same professor do a PhD. We'll see. I have to, first of all, score really high on, on the thesis, but, uh, Unfortunately, I had COVID this year, so everything kind of yeah. uh, went well, to a halt, and I was I was unable to function for over three months. But well, I'm, I'm glad back, you're feeling better. To, by the way, preparing for this, uh, you know, I had to go back and read a whole bunch of things yeah. and articles and so on. There's like a whole pile of books. My wife came well, back home and said, "What's going on here?" <laughs> well, let me let me catch up the audience. What we're trying to do, um, because I know you for so long, I have been able to trust you on certain topics. It was actually you who uh, I remember about eight years ago, I called because I had a question about uh, why did the priests have to wear long garments when they went up on the altar uh, uh, in the temple? And then you you turned around and I asked you, I said, there's got to be a context to this. And you turn around and I still remember as if it was today. You turn around, you picked up a book, you opened the page and you said, oh, because in Egyptian, the priests used to wear almost they were almost naked. And I went like, where can I find that information? He goes, well, this book is only in Hebrew. And then uh, that's my journey on ancient or Eastern culture. So let me ask you this. And I'm well, going to discovered that book was in English in the end as well. <laughs> oh, really? I, I, I need to get it. So well, I think you have it, actually. <laughs> I do actually now. So um, it's probably the one by um, Casuto, Umberto Casuto. Oh, Casuto. I got it. Yes. It was amazing. Casuto amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So, okay, so this the, the first question that I want to ask you, and I want to go to the canons, okay? We need to do a brief historical account of the canons and what importance does the pseudo-intertestamental uh, pseudo, um, um, period, like the book of Yahshua, the book of Enoch, the book of um, um, Enoch, what do they play alongside all the books, by the way, but how come those books never made it to the canons? Well, I first have to make a note about Sefer HaYashar, the book of Jasher. Um, it's an extremely late book. Um, I wouldn't even start discussing the book of Jasher because it is a book that contains references to Renaissance Italy, and the language there is pseudo-biblical. There is, there is no reason whatsoever to even treat the book of Jasher as anything that can ever enter the canon. So that means that even in this case, this book's, in Judaism, they don't really play a very important part in their studies. It's it's pseudo history. It, 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 people read it. People have copies of it at home, but it's it's like reading Josephus. It's it's it gives you some insight to some ideas. It's 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 based on midrashim. You can find elements of midrash Rabbah, which was written in the eighth century, one of the earliest midrashim that exist. Um, it has elements which are extremely late. This is this is a book that emerged somewhere in, I, I want to argue, Italy or something like that, or Spain, probably somewhere in the 13th or 14th century. Yeah. Um, and I actually did a study uh, several years back for a friend of mine. We were 
combing through the entire book. I got half of the book, he got the other half, and we're combing through it. And because I work as a Hebrew teacher and I work as a Bible scholar, and part of our work is to actually function as philologist, I found so many issues, editorial issues, uh, seams within the text, which is what I'm classically trained to do with the biblical text, but also just historical references to very, very specific events. And by the way, the Book of Enoch has this as well, and I, I'll, I'll already say it now, there is a reference to the Parthian invasion or the potential Parthian invasion within Enochian literature. And okay. it's a very, very, well, very late. That's very late because it's you know, very late. We're talking about something the Romans had to deal with. Right, right. Well, you're, you're asking a very fundamental question here regarding what exactly is canon. And to tell the truth, it is a very confusing and very complicated subject that um, people have spilled gallons upon oceans, I would say, of ink to discuss this subject. Um, from what I've read throughout the years on, on, this, on this topic, the answer would first of all be what is considered to be popular within literature. Now we have to understand that there are we, we don't we can't really say that there was a point in time where someone said okay this is the canon make a circle and say anything that fits within the circle is the canon but it's even more complicated than that because we also have the question of what exactly is the version of the text that we we're going to that we're going to consider as canon so there are there are multiple layers here and there's a lot of things that are very misleading um, so I, I, I want to first of all start off with what exactly was the library during the Second Temple era. Okay, the, we, we don't have literature, biblical literature from the First Temple era, so it makes it very difficult to have a discussion there. And it's very common within academia to say there's no volaka, there's no some original text that we can point to. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it is important to understand that when you would look at a library in the ancient world and overall, people would have depositories there will be lit there will be literature from everywhere yeah like uh, ashur banipan had a huge library and as well as the alexandrian uh, well, uh banipal did that for those who don't know ashur banipal was one of the last emperors he was the son of asar khadon mm -hmm. uh, he was a, an assyrian uh, head, the king of the assyrian empire uh, towards the end of the 8th uh, leading into the Ooh. leading into the uh, the the basically the 7th century, I can't remember exactly the exact dates right now. Um, the Asad Khadun is a very important character, but Ashurbanipal is a very interesting case because in the ancient world, kings weren't supposed to know how to read and write. They were supposed to just do war and bring glory right. to the gods and so on. And Ashurbanipal boasted about the fact that he could read and write. Right. So it was a very unusual case. But libraries, people who wanted libraries collected books like you would not believe. So the fact that you find, for example, a place like Qumran, uh, a, a, a collection of probably several hundred to to maybe close to a thousand. It depends who you ask. There, there are scrolls that have been disqualified. So I think the number stands around 930 books. We assume there, there's stuff that was probably stolen. So we don't we don't necessarily have everything. Um, but um, the, the thing that we have is when we look at a library and we look at a library in a cave and it's old scrolls and everything, one of the first reactions that we have, and this is something that we naturally do, this is, this is not, uh, we don't do this deliberately. We see something old and we say, oh, that must be the original. Okay, this is a concept known as antiquarianism. It's, it's the, the love of antiques. And the problem with this love of antiques is that it's very, very misleading. 
and you would think that, oh, I have this ancient scroll and now somehow it's worth something is a, an information bias, I would argue, that plays with certain religious sentiments that we have as people. Uh, and this is why, for example, there's a thriving market in Jordan for That's basically true. fake antiquities. That's true. Um, and the problem that we have here is that the scrolls were discovered and the response to it was, this must be the original Bible or something like that. Not everyone, we have to be very careful with it. The, but what was very interesting is that the, the early scholars went out their way to discuss these scrolls in context of the Bible. And then eventually the realization came that this is not really the right way to do it. And also when they started digging more and more and basically um, you know, in the 1950s, they discovered more and more scrolls the realization was that these scrolls sometimes heavily differ than what we expect the Bible to look like. So, so give me an opportunity for the audience, because a lot of people may not know what we're talking about. The Qumran scrolls are a collection of books. Uh, Qumran community was made up of uh, Kohanim, sons of Aaron, and now they're debating whether or not only a few uh, priests were there because they attract certain people from Jerusalem. But that moved to the mountains, uh, to the to the to the desert, and they come. Uh, they uh, they started they started a community that were in uh, in rejection of the corruption of the uh, first temple period or the Hellenization period. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Second temple. Yeah, second temple period, and um, and their focus was uh, moral and extreme uh, ritual purity, which basically isolated themselves not having limited connection with the world. So they started to write certain things. And in 1948, when they were discovered, then it created a huge avalanche of information. But what happens, the problem that I'm seeing today in the Western world uh, amongst believers in Yeshua who do not have the background and the scholarly world like you do is understanding where do they fit in the scheme of Bible uh, in the our study. Uh, are they scripture? Are they just a supplemental understanding of what they were thinking? Or should we follow everything they followed uh, just because they did it? And that's the question that we're having today. Yeah, so this, the history of this is actually much more complicated because, uh, first of all, just if I may. Make it simple. Um, make it simple. You can do it. The scrolls are, first of all, first it probably discovered in 1947. That's number okay. one. Number two, it, it's, it's, this, is, this is like esoteric information as far as we're concerned. But it's also important to understand that the, the, the community starts somewhere within the first half of the second century. And we recognize them as what's called the Damascus community, at least the school I come from. Uh, I studied Dead Sea Scrolls also under Dr. Leora Goldman, uh, who I actually uh, work with these days at Oranim College. And no, wait, 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 wait. So you said something really interesting that I did not know. You okay. said that is in the beginning of the second century? In the beginning of the century, second century BCE. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't actually yeah. I was yeah. trying to figure it out. Sorry. If I was on the, so I was right. Okay, go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm trained in, in, in ancient history, but I'm, I'm specifically ancient antiquity, but I'm specifically Bronze Age and Iron Age. Gotcha. So for me, any date is usually BCE. Sorry, my apologies. No so way. we're talking about somewhere around between 195 to 175 BCE, a group moves to Damascus, and we understand as being literally Damascus. Uh, Antioch III was very comfortable for Jews. They leave because there's a certain tension within the Temple of Jerusalem. We don't, know, we don't really know who they are. We don't know who their leaders are, but they wait for the teacher of righteousness, Moriah Tzedek, uh -huh. and he shows up somewhere within that 20-year 
20 year um, time frame, and then he leads them back, but he doesn't lead them back to Jerusalem. He leads them into the desert of Judea, probably Qumran, um, but we have to understand also Qumran is not an isolated uh, settlement. It's, it's actually sits on the main road. They produced a very expensive oil called the Falsemon. Um, they were very involved in, 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 in overall. So there's this problem also when we approach this group of thinking, well, there were Kohanim. Well, yeah, some of them were Kohanim. Actually, when you read the rules of the community, it explicitly describes that there's Kohanim and there's Leviim and there's Israel, and some of them believe that women are allowed to be involved. And some yeah. well, there was at least one of them that didn't like women, so he writes against women. It's but a that, very complicated reality. But that's a very important point you just brought up because on this side of the pond, people are saying that they were all priests. As no. one, at one time, I thought that, but the more I'm doing research, I'm going, wait a minute. We know they have Kohanim, priests among them, but they, they were not all priests, which kind of diffused the whole argument that they're having that the priesthood in Jerusalem was done away with. And now they were the ones uh, that, that were in authority. And, uh, and there's a huge argument going on out here. So that piece of information that you're bringing yeah, okay. in. It helps us understand who the audience was. Yeah, so you, you just you need to read the literature itself. So I'm going to, I'm going to recommend something here. Um, there, is, there are several translations, but I personally, one of the translations I use, this is for English speakers. Uh, this is the new translation of the Dead Sea, uh, Dead sea Scrolls by Wise, Abeg, and Cook. Okay. I have it. Yes. Okay. This is, this is a very useful tool. Um, it's well translated. I personally, I'm trained to actually look at the, the fragments themselves and use the DJD, which is Discoveries of the Judean Desert. That's the more professional way of working. But oh, tell uh, us, actually, wait, well, tell us a little bit about that because the audience don't know that you yeah. actually worked in some of the fragments. Yes, I belong to a um, a study group called the uh, the Scripta Cumranica Electronica (SQE). Uh, you can actually find me on their website. I'm described there just as a um, just as a, uh, a student, but that, that's from like two years ago. But the, the the whole idea there is that we were working on a wisdom scroll called Musar Lemivin, or uh, there's a whole bunch of um, names for it. Some people call it 4Q instructions. And my job was to literally sit every day and sift through. Uh, electronic versions of the Dead Sea Scrolls, organize fragments, help the researchers piece things together. And there is actually now uh, in the publication that should come out, I think next year, there is a section which I, I'm the one who actually wrote that section. Awesome, man. Um, that's, that's great to know. Um, congratulations on that yeah, great it, work. It, so it will probably be under someone else's name, but I get credit for that work great. as well. So tell us a little bit on the same line that you were going the Qumran, uh, where does the Book of Enoch play a role in time frame between the Qumran community and the Book of Enoch? Oh, wow. So there's a, first of all, there's a major problem with the Book of Enoch. <clears throat> first of all, it's not the Book of Enoch, it's the books of Enoch. This Correct. is why I used earlier the term Enochian literature, because we're looking at books which are clumped together, but not in any Dead Sea Scroll, because the amount of information found in the Dead Sea Scrolls for the books of Enoch is extremely small. Um, most of our knowledge of the book of, books of Enoch are actually from the Ethiopian canon. 
So what you're describing is people trying to add books to the canon and so on. They're basically reproducing what the Ethiopian church did back in the third century to third, fourth century to the common era. Um, I actually studied and wrote a groundbreaking research paper on, uh, literally it was called groundbreaking because it was the first one ever written in Hebrew uh -huh. on the Ethiopian church. Now, my paper specifically worked on the monophysite, um, I keep on forgetting how to say that name, that's been several years, uh, monophysite, I think it's the monophysite, monophyseo, basically one body of uh, the belief in, in Yeshua or Jesus, however you want to call him, uh, and the uniqueness of the Coptic church, the Ethiopian Coptic church. But as I was going through the information, I had to study about their Bible. And what's very interesting about their Bible is that their Bible contains the largest number of books, including the book of Baruch and the books of Enoch and, and many, many, many other things. So okay. the only full text we have of the book of Enoch is actually written in Gerez, which is an Ethiopic language, a very old Ethiopic language, uh, which I had the privilege to study the Book of Watchers, which is one of the older books of the Book of Enoch, books of Enoch, under Professor Bendov, who actually reads, reads Gerez. So that is really funny. Uh, we had this interesting symposium for one semester. We were studying the Book of Watchers in multiple languages. And uh, we were reading in Gehez. So I, I actually went through a seminar how to study the Book of Enoch as well, which was amazing because this, this was a PhD level uh, course, which was just astonishing. Uh, it was a great honor to be, to be invited into so, it. And the interesting, yes. So go ahead, go ahead. Interesting. Yeah, so the interesting thing is we actually don't have the original Book of Enoch. What we do have is uh, fragments from 4Q201 all the way to 2012, I think, something like that. So when do you suppose well, the, book, the, uh, the, the, the documents or the literature of Enoch was somewhere written, somewhere in the second yeah. BC? Yeah, so the, 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 the assumption is based on some of the references and so on, is that it was written somewhere probably in the third century BCE, so in the 200s. Wow. Um, we need to understand that there's a hierarchy between the books, and we need to understand that they... Um, are in front of us only in small pieces. There's a little bit of Greek left, a little bit of Aramaic. Um, there may be some pieces also in Hebrew, but one of the astonishing things is that there, the, high, the, uh, the, the higher probability is that the Book of Enoch was written in Aramaic, and that's crucial. Yeah. Because what it tells us is that whoever wrote this book wanted his audience to be a widespread audience. So we need to stand in the second- the international language at one point. Exactly, it was the lingua franca, and that's what most people spoke. But it's a bit more complicated than that because he, in the book that we're specifically talking about, which is the Book of Luminance, or whatever other name you want to give to it, um, is, or the astronomical book, it's a book that uses Hellenistic principles, Hellenistic math, and um, it has, the, the literature itself has references to Romans and, and, and other characters, things that cannot belong to something that was written 6,000 years ago. So that, that, that those pieces of information is what allows the scholars in Israel to pinpoint the time frame when it was written. Because So we can safely say without a shadow of a doubt that it was not Enoch who wrote it. <laughs> for sure, for sure. For, it's even more than that because... Even some of the terminology used there to uh, refer to places in the land of Israel, 
um, he uses the name Hermon. Now, yeah. Hanoch or Enoch would have never used that name because the name Hermon or, or Sion, as it's called also by the Phoenicians, um, were this is this is centuries, millennia after Hanoch. Gotcha. So there, there, there's no way on earth that this would be uh, written by by someone that far away. But also the type of Aramaic being used. This is this is this is this is regular Aramaic. This is not what we would say, let's say, some kind of an Aramaic that belongs to uh, the Bronze Age. No, this is this is Aramaic that belongs to the Second Temple era. Yeah. You know, the, there are many dialects of Aramaic, but this Aramaic is very very specific. So, so we can you know, pinpoint a, lo a lot of details when this was written. So let me ask you a question. As a Jewish person who lives in the land of Israel and study there and know the Hebrew clearly and Aramaic, and now you're learning Akkadian too. Um, Actually, you finished Akkadian. <laughs> good, good. When you, when you see people in the Western world who literally just came into this yesterday and they're adding the Book of Enoch, Yasher, and, the, uh, and Jubilee, the Book of Jubilees, into the canons as if it's scripture changing the modern day calendar, the day, the calendar that is in the Bible, you know, um, what, what, what do you think? What do you go through? What is your, what are your thoughts about that? Um, you can be honest. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be honest. No, but I mean, I, but the thing is, the, the, the reason, but wait, the reason why I want you to be honest is because sometimes we sit over here, we, well, we study by ourselves and this is the number one problem that I'm seeing. The problem is that, we are so um, wounded by the systems of religion. We come in, we, self, we feel self-empowered. We want to uh, begin to start studying for ourselves. And now we learn a few um, little Hebrew, Paleo-Hebrew, and now we assume we know everything. And now we start saying, wait a minute, they lie to us. So therefore, all those books now belong in the Bible and it's creating chaos. And there's a reason why they're not in the Bible. So what is your, as a Jewish person, in the land of Israel, who see us doing our best to return to the Torah, but we're not in order. We're not really studying the proper way. That's something that you've taught me a long time ago to search. And you know that I've done my best the last 17 years since you met me. Wow, 17 years since you met me to, to really change my approach to study, to be honest with the research, to make sure that I'm presenting the right thing. And you've seen that. You've seen my change in the last 17 years. What is your opinion about the way that those books are being used in uh, as, is, as if, if they are canon? I would say that there is a certain um, naivete in, in this type of behavior. It is very, very common in, um, in religious thought to always seek what's older, to always seek truth, and to feel in many cases that a certain truth has not been revealed to you. This is a very basic psyche of religious people. It doesn't matter who, what religion you belong to, but especially within Judaism and Christianity, it's a very common thing. Um, where our way of thinking as religious people is based on the principle of this, the seeking truth. Okay, what's called cheker ha'emet, the research of truth um, and we, we have to be very, very careful with this. So my attitude is usually to be very um, calm and subtle about it, but some people would explode. Um, I've trained myself. I'm working very hard to train myself not to lose it because when you work with people, you have to be very calm. But there is a, a problem with this type of behavior because what it does is it makes you, you the general you, the, not the specifically you, 
uh, it makes you the authority. What enters canon? What doesn't enter canon? What is truth? What is not truth? Is what that, is the actual word of God and what's not? There's a certain hubris in this type of behavior. It's extremely dangerous, especially, yeah. especially if you don't understand these books. It's extremely, extremely dangerous. And I can give you multiple examples of people who discovered some literature or read something and they don't have the, 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 even the beginnings of understanding how this literature works. And now they make decisions. And in my work, I've been working as Hebrew in Israel for over 10 years, and I've received some very strange emails, very strange ideas. And sometimes you have to be humble and say, look, maybe there's something what this person is saying. I have yeah. to look into it and so on. But when you start breaking ranks to a point where you're actually adding to the word of God, okay, you're, you're, you're saying this is also part of the word of God you've entered a very, very dangerous realm. Okay, so with that being said, we talked a little bit about the Qumran. We talked a little bit about Enoch uh, and the book of um, uh, Jubilees and things like that. Uh, we haven't raised Jubilees. I, we have to wait with that one. I have a few things to say about that too. Actually, <laughs> why don't we do this? T tell us a little bit about Jubilees. And then I want to ask you the question in regards to the priesthood, in regards to the calendars, and, uh, and we're going to focus on those two things based on what's going on over here in regards to the Book of Jubilees, the Book of uh, Enoch, and the Qumran community. So tell well, us a little bit about the Jubilees. So Jubilees as well is one of these other books that we don't really have a full copy of. It's one of those books that arrived to us uh, through the Theopic uh, canon and so on. And the, the book itself is a radical a uh, book that completely changes everything. It is first of all a midrash on the um, explain, on explain, the book of Genesis. Explain, a, explain midrash. Yeah, it's an exegesis basically. It's okay. a retelling with exegetical elements within it that's based around the idea of weeks and jubilee and uh, weeks and years of sabbatical years and jubilees in the idea that there's some kind of an ideal structure of time within the universe. So this kind of goes into the area of cosmology, which I'm, you're, I'm not mistaken, you're pretty versed in, or at least you've studied some of it. And um, it, it looks at reality in a certain element of perfection. So it tries to fit in taking basically uh, element, parts of Genesis, parts of Exodus, and kind of fitting different concepts of this time frame into the stories of the Tanakh to a point where, for example, he understands that the Torah had, had always existed, and therefore everything that the, um, the, the patriarchs did was linked to some element within time. So we have a very important section in chapter six of the Book of Jubilees that mentions Avraham, doing a certain act in a certain time frame, and he says that was actually Shavuot, and that's the establishment of the Feast of Shavuot. Even though from, a, from, a, from an academic perspective, Shavuot is part of an agricultural calendar, right. which we're going to touch on later on. Gotcha. So, okay, okay. so basically, the Book of Jubilees, what, what it does, it gives you what I found in my studies of those books, which I used to use about 16 years ago in my studies, as a point of reference, 
until I began to look deeper into its origins. And then I realized that, like you said, they're midrashim, exegesis on uh, about what the Bible is saying. It was only a point of view. So I decided to look more into uh, Philo of Alexandria and Josephus because they were more like historians. They were more like uh, you can you can trace more of truth within their books than understanding maybe intertestamental period that to me is kind of good to look into maybe the apocalyptic literature, the way they were thinking during that time frame. That's the way I approached. It. I don't know if I'm wrong, but the way I look at it is like, you know, maybe it gives you an idea what they were thinking in the second century. You know what I mean? Uh, I would say that, for example, first of all, Josephus and Philo are, are great sources and overall um, very important literature to read. Um, Josephus is a Hellenized Jew who lives in Alexandria, so he interprets a lot of things based on these Hellenistic principles, but he's really not, um, he, he's really not the type of person to change anything. Right. You mean Philo but, or, Alex or Josephus? Which one? Both of them. Okay, gotcha. No, but, they just but, historical account, but nothing to change. Yeah, but Philo, Philo, we have to be very specific that he has within the books that he wrote, besides the polemics and so on, he also wrote about the laws of Moses. So yeah, he gives yeah. these very interesting descriptions of how they kept Torah in Alexandria. Now, right. he, he's very close to the Pharisaic mindset, but he's still a Jew of Alexandria. So he's not necessarily part of the Jerusalem group of people. Right. Right, I got you. That's what I found in his books. What I really loved about uh, the way Philo writes, it gives you, and I compare, you know, Rav Shaul, Paul, it's like the uh, Greek rhetoric, the way the level of, you know, Greek uh, writings, the way they're, they're conveying the message of their culture of its time. And I found that very helpful Helpful when you start um, going through the letters of Paul in the, new, in the, new, in the first century. But going back to the topic, um, calendars is something that is creating such a huge conflict in the Western world. And the one thing that I keep telling people, and I'm going to take a few minutes to explain where I'm coming from, uh, because I used to follow those crazy calendars about until like 10 years ago. And when I began to study law, as you know, you I told you about uh, these books that I have right here, and you said they're really one of the best. Obviously. Yeah, Gedalia alone. It's 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 a fundamental book in studying what's called Mishpat Ivri. It's right, Mishpat Ivri, right here. Hebrew yeah. uh, Hebrew law, Jewish law. Right. Um, any any lawyer here in Israel at some point in their studies comes across this book. So this is the one thing I've been focusing a lot the last two years. And when I begin to really go deeper into Jewish law and the structure of the Torah as a legal binding document. Man, I really began to understand why God tells the Kohanim, the priests, that they are the ones who determine the times and the seasons. Because it's connected to the temple, it's connected to the altar, the agricultural cycle it is too. Today, we have a problem in which people in the Western world, they're citing the new moon in Virginia, and they're saying, we can start the month of Nisan. Or they try to uh, have someone see the Aviv in America, and they say, well, we can start Nisan now. I'm not saying that you should not practice the new moon or look for the Aviv. I'm not saying that, but can we change the law? That's my question. Well, the answer is no, of course not. Um, the, the power, even the power of the Kohanim and the Leviim and the Shoftim, as it says in Deuteronomy 4, you go up to the place the Lord your God will choose and you uh, ask the 
Kohen or the Shofet, the judge who is at right. that time, their power is more power of interpretation. Right. Uh, there is this concept within the Tanakh of a living Torah, which has to do with prophecy, but it is not in the privilege of a Kohen or a prophet to invent new Torah. No. Uh, but we also need to understand... Yes. That again, that was very powerful, and I agree with it, and I finally understand it, but people need to hear and understand that from a legal perspective. Yes, so law in, the, in ancient Israel, it is agreed now by uh, most researchers that law in ancient Israel was what's called law of the fathers. We find this term also in the New Testament and so on. It's a very misunderstood term, but it actually means that most of your knowledge within a culture that is not a, uh, a, not a culture that bases itself on writing, this is, this is a, a, an illiterate culture, um, uh, Dembski wrote an entire book about this. Um, we, we find that everything that people did was based on the principle of my father did such and such, and therefore I do. It is not in your power to change anything. Right. So where do you find the ability to say, make up quote unquote new law is when you have a situation that's never been before. Right. That's the only case where there's a law that you can't make a decision because there, there's no there's no case, there's no, um, no situation, anything like this ever happened. So, so, yes. Go ahead. So with that being said, um, let's say, remember a question you asked me in Jerusalem about 11 years ago, you said, I'm afraid that the Judaism of today is not the same one as the first century. And then forgot it, that we had a, <laughs> we had a real good I conversation. We were, we were standing in a hotel on yeah. that next to route one. What was it? The, Olive tree or one of those. Yeah, I remember. And, See? And, and today, today I can tell you very clearly several things. First of all, when I say Judaism, I should have said Judaisms. Yeah. Uh, it, and we also need to understand the answer is most definitely yes. Right. Uh, things have changed. What's very, very interesting is that when it comes to the calendar, nothing changed. Oh, okay. So that's what I want to go to. So we need to differentiate between the calendar from the last Sanhedrin Council to Judaism of the Middle Ages, of the Ashkenazi, the Sephardim, the, uh, the, uh, the Yemenite, away from Jerusalem from the third century on, in which a rabbi cannot add or take away from the Torah, but in order for them to, to acquire a custom, a minchag, they try to, or, or trying to to bring a custom into the community, they cannot just bring it based on their own interpretation. They have to use something already established as a premise or a foundation for that to take place. Am I correct in understanding this? Yes, but that's an oversimplification of it. I understand, but you, know, I, I'm remember, gonna, I'm you gonna... and I understand this, but a lot of the audience are not, they don't understand the mechanics of Judaism. So I'm trying to simplify a little bit. Go ahead. But you yeah, can do better. I just, want to correct some, I just want to correct something. The name of the author of the book he pulled out was, is Menachem Elon. Gedalia Elon is important for another thing about the Sanhedrin, which I'm going to bring up later on. Gotcha. But we, we need to understand several things here. First of all, in the Second Temple era, this is what, we, what I sometimes call post-trauma Judaisms. Um, they were trying to figure out what they are, who they are, their identity, and what's true and not true with the understanding that prophecy doesn't exist anymore, at least not the regular prophecy that they had during the first temple era. Um, when it comes to Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin, Gedali alone actually raises a lot of questions about what was really the power of Sanhedrin? Was it really a Sanhedrin the way rabbinic sources describe them? And it's a, it's a very complicated historical reconstruction, but the, the overall tone is that 
um, you really maybe should ask which Sanhedrin, because when you look at, for example, the tractate of Rosh Hashanah, which deals with the calendar, the tractate itself openly admits there were at least two of them. There was a Sanhedrin of the Pharisees and there was a Sanhedrin of the Kohanim. And they disputed with one another when to, for example, decide when the calendar is. But there's something really important about this whole thing, that when we look at the concept of the calendar between the Kohanim in the tractate of, of Rosh Hashanah and the, and the Prushim, they're holding to the same calendar. Their debate was more about when was the moon sighted? Can you accept certain uh, testimonies of moon sightings? So there's a few things we have to put down here. First of all, in the ancient Near East, the calendar, without a doubt, this is, um, I'm going to drop a few names, Professor Yonatan Bendov, my own teacher, but uh, um, Stern, uh, Sasha Stern, who yeah. is another gr a big researcher, he wrote about a book called uh, Community and Calendar, where he actually proves uh, without a doubt, uh, also Professor Bendel proves that without a doubt, many researchers prove without a doubt, that the calendar in ancient Israel was a lunisolar calendar. So it's not lunar solar, not lunar and not only uh, exactly. uh, combined. We, we don't, we, we find that in, in an overwhelming understanding, uh, Mark Cohen also wrote about this, Everyone in this region practice a lunar solar calendar, except for the Egyptians. Correct. The Egyptians practice a solar calendar, but their calendar it depends when. There are elements of the moon within their calendar, depending when, where there are elements of only the sun. There's the rise of the Osiris star. There's the 1,400 and something other uh, year cycle. And there's a lot of things that goes into the Egyptian calendar. But the Egyptians have always been the opposite of everyone else. This is a historical conundrum with them. They always see themselves as different. But the fact that they follow the solar calendar is actually quite important because the calendar that we're going to be tackling here is a solar calendar. And one of the main arguments that I hear all the time when people deal with this calendar question is, but this is from Babylon. No, it's not. Everyone <laughs> used this calendar. Exactly. It's like saying the sun was worshipped and therefore don't use the sun or something like that. Or right. what was the joke he made last time with showering or what was it? Toilet paper? <laughs> I don't remember. It. I forgot. I forgot. There's a certain ridiculous, and this I'm going to say ridiculous because I'm actually on record saying this yeah. uh, on my YouTube channel, that there's this fear of following something pagan, but you end up following something else that can be labeled as pagan. That's true. So That's you, true. you're going to lose anywhere you go. So we need to understand a very important premise here is that there's a shared culture. And the right. shared culture is, it's very obvious that the Israelites had a lunar solar calendar and this is the calendar that they followed. There is no doubt about it. What I've been telling people is exactly that. The Bible, John Walton said, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. And I keep saying, they all shared the same geographical location in the engineers. They shared a lot of the similarities. They shared, uh, so the contrast between God's calendar and the Canaanites is that it's a, the time of the spring, fertility rituals. The difference is that the God, the, the God of Israel requires Israel to bring everything to him to be recognized as a patron and as a great God instead of the Canaanites bringing it to the fertility gods. So again, you know, it's understanding culture alongside with, with the geographical location. So with that being said, uh, Joel, and I'm so glad you're saying all this stuff. Um, the last the last Sanhedrin before the Jews was completely uh, expelled from Israel during the, the time of the Roman Empire, um, they came to a decree in which they established what we know today as the calendar. 
Um, and I mentioned yeah. <laughs> to people, no, go I, ahead. I, I'm, I'm going to immediately say no there. Okay. Um, calendar itself, sorry, I'm contradicting you, but this is actually kind of important. Well, I mean, this is, that's what we're here for. We want to find out. We need to understand a very simple thing. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay. in the temple service, in the Jewish way of thinking, in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Exodus, there are several cycles that work next to one another. Okay. The temple, I want to start from one point. The cycle of calendar that everyone lived by in everyday life was a lunar solar calendar. Mm -hmm. You went outside, you saw the new moon, and today we don't really see, I mean, I do moon sightings for the interest, and I... I post information about it and so on. But the way they used to do is you go outside, you see the new moon, you know, a moon cycle is about 29 to 30 days. And what do you do if there's a cloud? Well, a month can be more than 30 days. This was a, this is a reality. Uh, the Babylonians went out of their way to make calcu amazing calculations about this stuff. And um, you see the moon and in the morning, it is the new moon. Now, this is important to say in the morning. Why? Because even though we have that verse in Isaiah, um, that it says that you will celebrate like the night when a feast is sanctified. It's somewhere in somewhere in Isaiah. I can't remember exactly where it is. I just remember the verse. And even though um, we have this principle, Shabbat starts at sunset and so on, in the temple itself, everything only functions during the day. Yeah. So for the priests in the temple, the day was important. But for the average person keeping a feast, night, to evening to evening. And there's a reason for that because of the underworld deities and the way they worshiped. So in the temple, it was all about the realm of life, never about the underworld and darkness. That's the reason. The, Keep going. That's one direction you can take. Yes, I, I accept that, but you can, say, you can say a few other things. But in any case, we're trying to keep it simple because I, I can go rambling about everything under the sky. Okay. <laughs> you know me. Uh, so the, the thing is that there's, there's basically the night cycle, the day cycle, but there's a 24-hour cycle that everyone pretty much followed in the ancient world, except for those times where there's no sun, but you can see light and there's debates even in right. uh, other literature. What, what do you do with that time frame? Now, together with this, we need to also understand that it, the, the people who kept this calendar would sometimes argue about, oh, do we have to add a month or a leap year, not a leap year? And there's even indications that a leap year is not necessarily just at the, at the 12th month, adding a 13th month, but there was also a thing called um, um, a long elul. Okay, it's called elulu ereku which means a long elul, it's an Akkadian term. And the, the, the whole idea is that the, you might sometimes reach the end of the sixth month, which is around September nowadays, yeah. and you'll, you'll discover that, um, well, actually this year it comes out more in August, interesting year. And you, you basically reach and you look, we're not anywhere close to the, to, the, uh, to the end of the harvest and so on. So there's an understanding that they actually may have added a month at the six month. So you have a double six month. It wasn't called six and seven, it was called six A and six B. We can pretty much call it that way. And then what you do is you enter an agricultural cycle. You know, all the feasts are based on agricultural cycles and you have to make sure that when you do the feast of the Asif, if you look at, it's interesting, if you look at Exodus and Deuteronomy, it doesn't use the names Chagamatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Chagashavuot, right. yeah. or, or Chagasukot, it uses the terms 
חג האסיף, חג הקציר, חג האסיף, בצאת השנה, when the year ends, there's all this terminology that basically indicates that the end of the agricultural cycle is also a type of end of year. So we have a beginning of the year that happens usually what we call Nisan today, the Babylonian name Nisanu, um, and we also have an end in the beginning of a year in what we call Tishrei, and that's just how the calendar works. Now, what's very interesting is that with the exposure to um, the problems of the, sec of the first temple era and basically the post-trauma of what was going on in the, uh, the second temple, people were very afraid of violating Torah. And by doing so, they were seeking anything which they can identify as being a type of violation of Torah. And this is where we enter the whole thing of calendar, because when we think about it, as Noel says it in his uh, study on the Canaanites and when he says Kenites, he means anyone in this region, um, he basically says the calendar was a very central principle in everyone's religious life, okay? You would think that someone's not religious only if they say, for example, didn't show up at the temple or they didn't practice certain cultural things. But in overall, um, the, the, the idea of, of um, um, how would I put it? I'm trying to think exactly how to put it. The idea of not celebrating things at the right time was something that bothered everyone very, very badly. Yeah, the, of course. And it, by the way, it, it, it's still true to this day among the Jewish people. It is very true to this very to this day. There was, for example, a famous story that somewhere in the 1800s, there was a community that accidentally kept Chagamatzot or Pesach at the wrong date. And there was a whole discussion. There was a there was a rabbinic council that sat down and tried to see how they resolve this problem uh, because they made a mistake. This the rabbi made a, a miscalculation. But we need to understand that this calendar was used throughout the centuries until we reach the Hellenistic era in the land of Israel. So Alexander the Great conquers from Macedonia all the way to the Indus Valley. And he introduces this cosmopolitan idea, everyone is the same, and they start mixing and matching religions and so on. And there were Hellenized Jews. So there were people who were zealots, who for some reason thought that, oh, there's something wrong with our calendar because we're looking at the moon and the Greeks do the same thing, let's go look at the sun. But by doing that, they're just following this very unique calendar that was used in Egypt. <laughs> so they're right. basically losing from every end. Now, another very, very important thing that I, I realized as I was going through the, the data for this discussion is the realization that there's also a misunderstanding of who says what. And I have to point this out. The Book of Enoch does not object um, to a lunar solar calendar. It's a misnomer. It's the Book of Jubilees that does this. Mm -hmm. Book of Jubilees goes ahead and says, in chapter six, it says, and they will corrupt the laws of God and they will um, look at the moon and so on. And, the, and, and what's very interesting about this is that really in truth, when we look at the Torah, it's only when you look through kind of some verses with a certain, um, certain idea in your mind and, um, and, and, and you kind of think about what they were doing in the ancient Near East, only then do you realize it's a lunar solo because it doesn't say it explicitly. Right. There's a verse in Psalm, Psalm 10, um, what was it? I forget now, but there's a song that says, um, um, uh, It says, he made the moon for the, for the feast. That's and, 81? No, I don't think it's 81. It's, it's, it's uh, 100 something. I, 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 I,
You can't uh, remember I can't remember. Everything. I can't remember everything. We 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 don't practice uh, in Judaism quoting um, uh, yeah. the exact number of a chapter right. and a verse. But okay, so quote the verse itself. You you said something quite interesting that now I understand. I went to a particular conference, very nice people, but then they were mentioning to me that there are people within the Hebrew roots, uh, a little branch of the Hebrew roots that are following what is called the Sadokite calendar. I don't know what the hell is that about. And so, they, were, they were saying that they were taking some, um, they were taking some, some stuff from uh, the Book of Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, and the Book of, and the Qumran scrolls, and coming up with their own calendar. Yeah. So what they're actually doing is they're create probably creating a calendar that never actually existed. Uh, in whoa, the whoa, whoa. wait, 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 wait. Don't go too fast <laughs> right now. We need to go slow. What did you just say? There is a good, I need to see exactly how they define their calendar, but there is a very good chance that they're following a calendar that never actually existed. Thank Psalm you. 104, verse 19. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I, this is exactly what I told the people. And they're going, to, whoa, the Bible says, I mean, where in the Bible? I mean, the book of Enoch says, well, and this is what bothers me. It's like they come into the Torah and instead of obeying what Torah says so we can be obedient to the commandment, they start adding and take away stuff that they don't have the legal jurisdiction to do. And this is becoming a problem. It, it is It is a very, very big problem. So if we're talking about Qumran calendars, there were several Qumran calendars. Um, first of all, we need to understand that in, in, in Babylon, they had this concept of the ideal year where there's 12 months and every month is 30 days. This is called the schematic calendar. It is actually expressed in the flood story in Genesis 8 and 9. Correct. I think also 10. And it's actually quite interesting. I was reading a little bit of that about this book from this book on that. Oh, okay, I've, I've, I think I've seen that before. Yeah. And so there's a schematic calendar. And you use a schematic calendar, we're not too sure exactly when and where. So, for example, when you have a flood, you can't really tell when it's Aviv, when it's when it's uh, summer, when it's so you, you use a schematic calendar. You say every month is twelve, uh, every every year is twelve months, and you have thirty days. But this is not a real calendar. The Book of Enoch is actually arguing with this 360-day calendar, arguing a 364-day calendar. But this 364-day calendar um, obviously has to be adjusted every once in a while. But what's very interesting is when the fragments that we have in the Book of Enoch, as you open the Book of Enoch, so I'm going to go to Abed here for a second. As you open the Book of Enoch, he starts mentioning the, the moon. So for example... Um, Which book are you reading from? So I'm looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls by uh, by Wise uh, Wise Abig and show me and, show, oh. show the audience the the cover so they know what you're reading. Oh, this this one again. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so I put myself some markers here just to make sure I don't lose my my place. But for example, when we look at the fragments, um, immediately it says fragment four Q two O eight. So four stands for the cave. Q is Qumran, and then the number of fragment. The numbers are just in the order they found them. It's not as if the says this is the order of what it really should be. It's just the order they found them in. And it says, and a half seventh and the moon shines on the 11th night of this month and so on and so forth. And he talks about the moon over and over again, fragment 19 and 21, five and the moon's light equals five seventh strength. The moon just appears everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. It's very clear that Enoch uh, Hanoch is, is interested in introducing or actually 
enforcing a lunar solar calendar that uses 364 day uh, system. The only thing that we need to understand is that in this calendar, there were different attempts to try to make it as exact as possible. And what we end up with is a, a calendar that sometimes has like these splits, you have like a three year and a three year cycle, but you have to add days in between. So there's like these four days that don't really show up within the calculation and you, you don't count them sometimes. It's, it's a very, very complicated system. Right. I, I, it's so complicated by the way that there is a, a cryptic scroll, I think it's 4Q317, I think, um, where different writers in different periods were contradicting each other because they looked at the guy before him and the calculation that he did and said, that's wrong. Here's the correct calculation. It was okay, so, <laughs> so with that being said, what do you say about anyone who is following all of these cards, the Enoch calendar, the Sadokai calendar, which I never heard until this three weeks ago, and uh, the Qumran calendar, and, and they are this, this diminishing the one that the whole Jewish world follows, which is legal, by the way, um, compared to what they're doing now without the knowledge of this information, the background, and worse, making those books as canons. What do you say about that? I think, I think it's very important, as I said earlier, to be very, very careful with these things, creating division for no reason, because you think you discovered some kind of a truth. But when you really dive into these things very deeply, you discover that what you think you think it is, is actually not what you think it is. And this is always the danger of the overflood of information that we have today. You can access so much information in, in, uh, in a click of a button, but does it really mean you know what you're talking about? And I remember when I started in my academic career, I thought I knew everything. And then I was humbled over and over and over again, realizing I didn't understand something, I didn't realize it and so on. And it's not because I'm not intelligent. I actually finished my, my, uh, my bachelor's as summa cum laude. I, I had an average of almost 100. And it's still, you have to understand that there's a difference between knowing something and actually understanding it. Right. So I think, first of all, we have to stop with this division. It's very, very unhealthy. But also we need to understand that whatever people are coming up with, you have to ask them, have you read the research on this? Do you, right. can, do you, do you have access to the actual information? Do you, can you read this in its original language? Can you actually say that you're not trusting someone's interpretation of this? The moment you reach a level that you have the knowledge that you can start arguing about this, you also have to bring it in front of other people to discuss. You can't just Thank suddenly you. say, I have a truth. Thank you. In, in the academic called, system. Which is called a peer review. Exactly, a peer review. And a peer review was also used in the Sanhedrin. I want, that's someone, why, by the way, that's exactly why I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to go in that direction. Thank you. Um, this is something that is not practiced. You know, I do this with you. When I call you, hey, Joel, I have a question. It's a peer review. I'm asking you to look at something I'm studying. And then you say uh, at, our, at our level and say, hey, okay, Rico, I think this and I think that, or maybe you disagree with me. And, and I appreciate so much when you bring correction. Uh, and this is something that we call that accountability in the Western world, but it does not exist within the Hebrew roots. So tell us about peer review and how you guys do it in the scholarly world. Well, basically what you do, you have to go through a... Uh, Someone, someone has noise from their end. Yeah, I'll turn it off in a minute. Go ahead, go ahead. So the way you do accountability is basically you, first of all, have to uh, look up all the re as much research as you can on a subject. 
Okay, let me let me bring people into the, into the world of, of 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 when you do academia. You first of all have to create for yourself a bibliography. The bibliography can be one page, it can be ten pages. I've submitted bibliographies of twenty pages. Okay, right. and um, you you start sifting through the bibliography to see what's worthy and what's not. Right. Your bibliography will change your song because you have to weigh what the person is saying. Has it been disproven? Is there any? So you have to sit there and you have to spend weeks, months reading all this literature to really understand it. Then what you do is you find colleagues or people who are bigger than you who will review the concepts you want to present. Then you start writing. And as you write, and the writing can take months years. Um, it depends how much of a, for example, I have to point out that the whole idea of what they're talking about, the calendar from, from Qumran and so on, my teacher, Professor Bendov, his PhD is on the subject. He wrote a, a, he wrote a book that uh, is called Head of all, uh, all the Years, Head of All Years, which is a, basically a rendition of his PhD, if I remember correctly. Um, and it takes years to write this stuff. Yeah. Okay. And, and, it, but this is years and years and years of training as well. And then you write it and you submit it to different committees and different people and you show it to your friends and you're going to get a million notes. You're going to have your entire book covered with red uh, ink everywhere. And you have to start correcting and changing things and so on. It is a very, very long and tedious process. And even then what you've presented is only a proposal. It has to be published. Eventually you'll get published at some point. And then everyone who's interested in the subject is going to read your literature and say, this is correct. This, you might find yourself 10 years down the road realizing that everything you wrote was, was nonsense. Right. Okay, this is, this is the issue. The problem that we have as religious people is that we have this concept of thinking that we are discovering truths instead of realizing that we are trying to piece together a history that's not really that simple. And sometimes there are things that we don't know. And we have to admit that we don't know them. But in this specific subject of the calendar, <clears throat> there's so much research on it. There's so much information about this. And there are so many things which are axioms. You can't argue with them that the calendar was lunisolar, that trying to step away from that is going to require you to basically, as we, as we say in Judaism, to rip out two mountains and crash them into one another into, and crush them into powder. That's the amount of power you need to be able to do such a thing. And you have to think about it. In the Sanhedrin, they did the same thing. You might have an opinion. You still have to argue your opinion in front of everyone. And you might be squashed by everyone as well. Well, isn't that what really the Mishnah is? Mishnah is speaking about all of the arguments that we're having in the Sanhedrin in regards to law. And I've learned a lot because, you know, the house of Shammai will say, the house of Hillel will say, Rabbi such and such will say, and then you have later on the Gemara, which are the opinions later on about all those things. And my question is this one. Uh, anyone who's following a calendar that, uh, for example, the whatever Saldakai calendar, I don't even know what the hell that is, uh, the, the calendar, Saldakai, whatever that is, the Qumran calendar or the Enoch calendar, how valid are those so-called three calendars in comparison to the one that the whole Jewish world follows? They're, they just don't exist. They're not considered to be calendars that you can follow. Why? The pr because no one did. There, there is a cultural thing here. You can't invent a religion on one leg. 
this is a cultural thing that goes back centuries and millennia. This is why the Romans use the term the, the, the laws of the fathers. This is why we find this in Josephus and so on. The only way that you were considered legitimate is if your pedigree was very, very old. This is why Enoch is written as a pseudo book. It's a pseudo epigraphia. It's a, it's a pseudo writer who's trying to present something as if it's ancient, but anyone who understands what they wrote there would immediately recognize that this is not what they claim it is. Law was first and foremost based on what did my father do? And we don't, we, 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 we find this small sect, this small group, we don't even know who these people were. You might, if, if we would discover who they were, we might discover that these were a bunch of lunatics. They might've been geniuses. We don't know. The right. reality is that we are looking at a, someone wrote something 2000 years ago or 2300 years ago, which stands in complete contradiction to everything that we know and I'm talking about everything, not just from tradition, but also from research, academia, that, that, that doesn't care about what people believe in. And we, we know as a fact that this is, how they, this is how the calendar worked. This is what they followed. Arguments in, in the ancient world regarding calendars was more about political power. This is about religious arguments. This is about, I am the one walking in the light of the truth. I am the son of light. And you are the sons of darkness and so on. These are things that still would be a minutia. That they're not part of overall Torah keeping. And these were people that may have even written these ideas as hypotheticals and not as things that you can actually practice. You might discover right. that this was some small group of 10, 15 people who followed this, but they had aggressive oh. literature. They spread it around. They convinced right. a few people. So, so it's very dangerous to, to kind of run to this literature without really understanding what it is. So would you agree with me then that if you don't know the Aramaic, the Hebrew, the structure in which they're written, the time frame where they're written, or the audience who, read, who wrote it, then you are committing a huge biblical transgression to law by adding something that is not God-ordained, per se, if not is, is imposed by our own understanding over here. Based on Torah law, the answer would be yes. So, you know, one of the things that I've encountered here, and we can talk about the podcast, because that's what this podcast is, is designed to do to talk about a little bit more challenging topics than I normally would do on my everyday teachings because, you know, with the different audiences. So if, if I'm going to talk about today's calendar that Jewish people follow, I noticed that they never argue about Passover. In other words, they can argue about it, but they'll keep it the same way. <laughs> you, know? you can have different I'm, discussions. Unless you're a Karite or, or right. something something different. Yeah, but there, there's basically a consensus that the calendar that we follow is what we follow. There, there are some questions. There are some issues. I have a, I have a, a, a podcast called The New, New Moon Conundrum, where I, I kind of address some of this. But the, the basic premise of the rabbinic calendar that we use today, which was really introduced more somewhere around, I would say, about 1,000 to 1,200 years ago, but it's it's based on the calendar that came before it. In truth, the rabbinic calendar that we follow today is basically a calculated version of the ancient lunar solar calendar. Because they couldn't change it. There's no way of changing it. So when we, we talked about the decree and the Sanhedrin and so on, really what was going on, the power of decreeing when certain things happen within the calendar was based on 
what was decided in the land of Israel based on moon sightings and so on. But there was a competition between the Jews of Babylon and the Jews of the land of Israel. Eventually, when the land of Israel lost its power, they all moved, the center moved to Babylon. They started using a much more uh, aggressive way of, uh, progressive is the right, right word, but they used a, a very strong calculation, even though we know that in the 10th century to the common era, uh, there were still sighting moons. There was, uh, there was a big argument between Rav Saadia Gaon and, um, and Ben Meir, and um, as it seems to be, and this is what Sasha Stern writes, that in the land of Israel, they were still signing the new moon. Right. And that is a very interesting argument when it comes to that. But one of the things that I talked to, I remember about seven years ago, I can't remember anymore, years are going by so fast. About seven years ago, we have about maybe like 50 more minutes. So we're going to try to bring it back home. Um, mm -hmm. I was talking to the president, I'm sorry, the secretary of the Sanhedrin Council that they formed in 2004. They're trying to get, they don't really have any judicial uh, authority within the government of Israel, but they're trying to organize it because things are moving rapidly in so many different ways in regards to the Beit Hamikdash and the preparations for it. But the conversation of the calendar came between me and uh, him and I were talking about it. He goes, and I asked him about the calendar. He goes, well, legally, we cannot really do anything about it because we need the mitbeach, the altar, and we need this... Uh, and we need the Kohen, the priest, the high priest, because according to Ezekiel 44, in verse 23 and 24, and it also according to in Numbers 18, things that belong in the realm of the altar, and we know the calendar is connected with the altar because of the new moon and the sacrifices in Numbers 28. So you do need the restoration of the mitbeach, um, the altar, in order for things returning to to temple Sanhedrin priestly declaration. And we, I, we, had, a, we had an interesting topic on that. I, I have to disagree with him. Uh, first of all, you don't need Sanhedrin to really declare a new moon. Or you, you don't need the altar on the priest, though. Uh, there is no evidence to that. I, no, I I'm think talking about to the feast, to declare the new moon. No, no, I, that, that, I know what you're talking about. I, I, and I disagree with him. I don't think he's correct about that. Um, you have to look at the, well, they are entwined into one another because you're expecting to celebrate certain feasts at certain times and you need an altar for that and so on. But um, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the require, the, the prerequisite for actually uh, declaring new moons and so on. All you need is just a, a committee of, of elders, acceptable elders exactly. who would declare a new moon. And this is what they did in the land of Israel. And it was considered to be legitimate for a th almost a thousand years Mm -hmm. um, after the destruction of the Second Temple. Uh, they were doing this in Yavne, Lod, Kisa'ev, was it also Kisa'ev, but the Tveria, uh, they were doing it, Tsipoli, they were doing Isn't that why after they got exiled from, from Jerusalem that they had more of a fixed counting like they always had all along anyway? Because no, it was, it was not a fixed counting. The, the, the fixed counting was really more necessary for the diaspora. Uh, we're talking well, that's about what I'm talking about. That's exactly my, my point, that when they're they, going to go into the diaspora, they have to do that. In the fourth century, the, the, the secret of what's called the secret of the Ibur, basically the calculation of what's the math that you do to figure out when things are supposed to be, uh, was leaked by uh, a rabbi who was trying to seek power for himself. That's at least how it's understood. Uh -huh. And he went to Babylon and told them the secret of how it's calculated. But it was declared that whatever they decide in Babylon doesn't have 
doesn't have power. So really, right. the, I would say that the you can argue that the because you can interpret this as a spiritual thing or as a, just a historical thing. Uh, the the reason we use the calendar we use today is more of a just the demise of the power of, of Jews who live in the land of Israel, and it right. really has nothing to do with with how the you know the, the Babylonians really have authority. So the, the authority in the land of Israel died out, so it had to move to someone else to continue the uh, the, so the chain of information. Yeah. So what we need to remember is also based on. Uh, uh, the new moon was connected with the temple based on this korbanot that they have to offer on that day. Yes, of course. We yeah, the, cal the calendar, the calendar, and the feasts and the sacrifices together. One another. Yes. That's what I'm trying to say. That they were all connected with one another. So if there's going to be any return to anything what they consider original, if we're going to use that word, uh, um, you can really go back to it to everything that what they may consider original until everything is in place. So if there's any discrepancies, what I'm trying to say is this. If there are any discrepancies on the calendar that the Jewish people keep today, legally, can they change anything until everything else is set up? That's my point. The consensus is that we can't change anything, but the question is, is this consensus actually accurate? Right. Because if the calendar was originally established by Hillel the, 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 the second, it was if it was established based on a certain principle and we've we've the theory that behind this is that we've diverted a little bit from the original way it was done. And therefore, what we do is a mistake and we have to revert back. But I have to point out that we need to remember two things. First of all, the mistake is only partial. Sometimes you see the moon, sometimes you don't. I've been right. keeping tabs on this for, for over a decade. But the other thing as well is that, as Sasha Stern called his book, uh, uh, community and calendar. At the end of the day, a big part of the concept of calendar is community. Exactly. Because I understand the notion that these are the feasts of the Lord and so so on. Um, you know, it says, These are the feasts of the Lord and so on. But at the end of the day, who are the people who decide these things? Not as if God speaks every month and says, now. No, it's not that. We go out, we sight the moon, and mistakes can be made. So let's let's assume something. Let's say I had, I had an incident uh, a couple of years back. I was able to see the moon. It was extremely faint. Most people aren't able to see it. What do you do in that in that situation? Do you go according to the majority, or do you go according to this one or two people that were able to kind of see it? The answer is you should probably go with the majority in this situation because the fact that I was able to see, but still it was kind of difficult. I can argue that maybe I didn't really see it the way I think I saw it. So would you would you agree with me then when the temple was standing? Let's talk. Let's go back to temple times. I, but I, I want. I just want to finish that for. Just finish the thought here. So there is the possibility, and we find this type of, of this this possibility in Babylonian literature and also rabbinic literature, where the mistakes can be made. And if a mistake was made, a mistake was made. Period. This is why in the book of Leviticus, in chapter four and five, we have these sacrifices. If the high priest makes a mistake, the coin of Mashiach. If the if the if the nasi, basically the chieftain or the king, makes a mistake or if an average person make a, makes a mistake. Mistakes are possible, and it, and it happens, and the Torah gives us provisions to fix, to, to basically, not fix, but repent from these mistakes. Even so, the high priest can make a mistake. So that, that actually got me away from what I wanted to ask you, and exactly went to where I needed to go, is that the, the Torah prescribed a way, a mechanism, because the moon is, the cycles are consistent. Uh, it's just the, 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 the clouds, whatever, don't allow to see it, but it's consistent. Mm -hmm. So if, if some, let's say a perception of a mistake is made, but um, the, that's why I told you that, that you're going to have to need an altar 
to restore things because if the leadership makes the mistakes, then they're going to come to the altar. And that's exactly what the secretary of the, of the Sanhedrin told me at that time. We don't have an altar in which we can bring the leadership and do that kurbanot, the offering, like Leviticus 4, that would allow us to ask for forgiveness on behalf of the community because they erred in judgment. And when he explained that to me, and I think you and I talked about it before, it allowed me to understand law. That's why I'm reading these books, because now we know that there are provisions for when things are done out of ignorance or, or even, you know, is law and you cannot change it, that the Lord would keep. That's why the Kohanim, they have to bear the iniquity of their priesthood and the mm. original, the, the, the iniquity of, their, of the sanctuary, whatever decisions they make. Um, so that means that anyone in the Western world who do not have the legal authority to change anything or add anything, and they are adding calendars when they're not, uh, when they don't have the legal jurisdiction to do so, because Israel, according to Leviticus 23, 1 and 2, we are to proclaim the feast. We're not to change them. That's really my whole bottom line, that in, the, in, their, desi in their desire to want to do it perfectly, they are really messing up more. That's pretty much how I would understand it. I, I, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. I admire people. I haven't said it here. I said, I'll please. I admire people's want and will. I started from a place where I thought I discovered all the truth and so on. And as the, the older you get and the, the more research you do and the more understanding you develop, you realize that sometimes, oh, I missed this. Oh, I missed that. Oh, that changes everything. Yeah. The, 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 I would say the safest way to work is, first of all, trust the traditions. I know that within the different movements of whatever you want to call yourself, there's a lot of issues about the tradition of men and so on, even though I don't think that's what the New Testament is really talking about. I've been having discussions with friends of mine friends of mine who are researchers on this subject i think that we need to understand that the base premise of almost every culture in the ancient world was our fathers did something we are doing exactly the same anyone who shows up with something else well in the ancient world in the ancient world should be stoned basically right well that's because you understand law I mean, you're a Levite too, by the way, by genealogy, you're a Levite. So you understand law. So it changes everything. That's one of the things that I've learned from you. And you know that in the last 17 years, I've done my best to, to look into these topics and be honest with the information and the research and accept what is established as being legal. Because if not, we're going to get ourselves in a serious, serious problem. I'm looking for a verse here real quickly, if you give me a chance. By the way, as a scholar, you've read the New Testament. So uh, so you understand a lot of the conversation that we talk about. We have conversations about this before. And it's quite amazing when you start looking in the context, um, in the context of the stuff that, you, that we teach from the uh, first century. And you understood in your research that many things that are written in the New Testament line up perfectly with the law of our fathers. That lines up perfectly with the way that was supposed to be in the first century. I, I would argue that part of the discussions that Yeshua actually has, I follow David Flussel on this, uh -huh. that Yeshua was actually just you know, a common Jew. He followed what everyone did. He has a custom, he goes to the synagogue. So what is this argument he has about washing their hands? His discussion there is not about washing hands. His discussion there is more about where's your heart? He actually says, you know, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of you that makes right. you unclean. 
He's not against the principle of washing hands. He's just saying, that's not what's important. You're, yeah. you're overlapping things. And actually, I would say something very important. What I noticed a little bit about Yeshua is that he's very anti-sectarian. He doesn't like it. He's actually very against the idea of being sectarian, of following whatever you that feel comfortable true. with or that whatever movement you belong to. He's, he's more a people's person. Right. He's interested in following the common customs. He's not against everything else. Yeah, it's about and, pure, moral purity and ritual purity. Let me, let me yeah. read this verse that goes exactly along what you just said about the traditions of my fathers. Now, check this out in Galatians chapter 1, uh, verse 13 and 14 says this. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous for, was I for the traditions of my fathers. Interesting. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, using it's, exactly the same term. Because that's how they perceived it. There, there's, a, there's a question here that we might actually have to go into in another podcast of what exactly is Torah? Yeah, yeah, we got to back for that. I, I almost re read, I almost wrote my thesis on that subject, by the way. Yeah, good, good, <laughs> I, good. I, I switched subject, but I read extensively about it as well. It's a it's a complication. What exactly is Torah? How can a book like the Book of Enoch suddenly be perceived by some people in the Jewish world at the time as being something that's acceptable as 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 uh, as canon or not canon, but as 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 uh, you know, scripture, but then eventually gets rejected. There's a lot of interesting questions that we right. only kind of dabbed a little bit into these, and maybe we need to kind of meet up again and talk about this. Because well, it, we're going to have to come back. Subject. We're going to have to come back for a second part because you really intrigued my. Uh, you really intrigued me in learning more about the canons, how they were put together, and I know there's a huge discussion on that. We don't have time to cover that today, or maybe in another hour and a half. But I, I want the audience to get a, an idea of. The scholarly world, what they think about calendars, what they researched heavily uh, already done in Israel in regards to this stuff. And sadly, many people in the Western world, they don't want to peer, peer review. And the audience, uh, what they do is they listen to somebody that sounds logical and they embrace it, not understanding the legality of the Bible. As you know, I've been studying uh, ancient Near Eastern texts and also mm -hmm. the Bible from a legal perspective as a constitution. And it has completely transformed my understanding of how to interpret law. And uh, sadly, we are all committing encroachment. So I want to thank you, Joe, my brother. Thank you for being here. Your information is very valuable. Thank, thank you for having me. Yeah, anytime. I don't necessarily uh, would agree with everything, would disagree with anything, but it's great to sit together and exchange and compare information that I may not have considered for me to go back and research it. So I have a more balanced approach to the Bible and my observancy. So I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank every single one of you out there for joining this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us at WIT Podcast with that podcast. If you want to know more, please go to my YouTube channel, uh, Wisdom and Torah Ministries, and you'll see it there. Or you go to Podbean for Witcast and wisdomintorah.com. Thank you guys for so much for joining me. It's a blessing. Joha Levy, if they want to get in touch with you, brother, because you're a Hebrew teacher, where can they reach you as so they can learn Hebrew from you? You're one of the few people I trust. <laughs> um, just email me at Hebrew in Israel, one word at gmail.com. Again, Hebrew in Israel at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, we can communicate through there. 
Um, and you can also go to Hebrew and Israel Facebook page, and you can just first of all like the page, and uh, you can send me messages through there, and uh, we can see how we roll from that. And we will have you back. I think it's important for us to do another one to continue our theme and our topic of calendars, the Book of Enoch, the Qumran community, and the first century understanding of scripture. Thank you so much, guys. Shalom to all of you. Thank you, Joe Halevi, for the enlightening conversation we had today. You brought a lot of information and hopefully opened some minds to reconsider and reevaluate which direction they're leading in the following of scripture. Shalom to all of you. Bye-bye. Okay.